Hello, and welcome to the NeuroTwist podcast, where we talk about neurodiversity in the world of speech-language pathology and beyond, as well as other therapy topics. I'm your host, my name is Emily, and I'm a licensed speech-language pathologist working in the early intervention setting. I'm also an autistic person. I was identified as an adult, and ever since receiving my diagnosis and learning about the incredible neurodiversity movement, I've been passionate about learning as much as I can, sharing as much as I can, and having amazing conversations, which is what we're here to do today. On this episode, I am joined by my friend and fellow autistic SLP, Jamie Boyle, to talk about working across disciplines with other professionals who may or may not be in the neurodiversity affirming space yet. So I hope you enjoy our conversation. Hi, thanks for having me. So my name is Jamie Boyle. I'm an autistic speech language pathologist, and I am a private practice owner. My private practice is called Speech Baby LLC, and that's in Philadelphia. Okay, well, thank you so much for coming on to talk about just being a neurodiversity-affirming professional and navigating that in a professional landscape that can be very variable in that regard. I would love to, before we get started, just hear more about your professional background and how your personal neurodivergent background relates to that. So can you tell us a little bit about your journey of how you got here? Absolutely. So my journey began Let's see. So I've been in the field. I graduated from graduate school in 2011. So I started off in private practice in my CFY and loved that setting. I always really did want to do that on my own, kind of went into the field thinking I I wanted to have my own private practice one day. And, you know, I just always wanted to do it my own way, but um, got really burnt out. And again, not being diagnosed then. When I was in graduate school, I was definitely noticing my neurodivergent differences. Didn't have a name for it. Tried to get a, um, you know, a formal diagnosis then. This was pre-DSM-5. Came away with a whole lot of nothing at that point. But I was like, all right, we'll just keep on going on undiagnosed. Um, but anyway, struggles were always there. Didn't have a name for it. Just kind of uh, did my best. So anyway, got really burnt out in private practice, wanted to do something completely different rather than like pediatric private practice, just to kind of see what else was out there in the professional world. So I did skilled nursing in Philadelphia, and then I um, loved that as well. And again, this is like a completely different setting. (laughs) It's like the complete opposite, basically. Turned out I uh, became director of rehab in the skilled nursing, so got a little bit of administration experience and also loved that too. And I'm like, you know what? I kind of want to begin my private practice on the side here and see if I can make this work for myself. So I did that while also working full-time, was definitely on my way to burnout again. And uh, then I was like, you know what? I got to make this leap and just do my private practice. And that's what I did. So that's where I've been since 2019 full-time in my private practice It definitely, you know, for me, made sense to kind of build my private practice just slowly on the side, working full time. And, you know, this was kind of pre-pandemic 2019. And uh, that was a bit overwhelming (laughs) when the pandemic happened. And then I was like, well, now I'm learning virtual with everybody else, you know, which was helpful. 
But my specialty, like I would say, is a few different things. Like I love speech sound disorders, love early language, um, love coaching caregivers. So that's kind of what I specialize in now. And I got my formal diagnosis just a few years ago when I found the right, you know, professional to kind of lay it all out there for me. Cause, um, kind of all along, I was like, I really think there's something there, but again, just was the wrong time for me in graduate school to be getting that formal diagnosis. Like, like I said, it was like pre DSM five and female autism, not very well understood. I even think now, like we're still learning about this. So yeah, we definitely are still learning a lot about it. I always love seeing Andy, Mrs. Speechy P's posts about autism in girls because I think she does a pretty good job of like getting the word out there. And I also feel like when I see her posts, I'm like, oh my gosh, I did that as a little girl. <laughs> yeah, same. She's a great, she's a great educator about that. I I wanted to know if this is something that you feel comfortable sharing about. What has your experience been like as being an autistic person running your own business and like doing it all on your own, like private practice, clinical work? So I like recently saw an autistic creator saying like, you know, autistic people don't need to be told what to do. We need to be shown how it works so we can do it our own way. And like, I really resonated with that. Like, I just needed to be shown like how to do it. Like, how to establish my my LLC, my business, like what do I need to get in order first so that I can do it my own way? Because like I really just wanted to like do something my own way because I knew kind of like what I wanted to specialize in and what I wanted to do. And then once I like got all my ducks in a row, I don't even know if that's the right expression. Expressions are tough for me. <laughs> And then like I, once I could figure it all out, I'm like, okay, this is good. Hopefully that's everyone else's experience that comes to see me. But yeah, it's like once I kind of like figured out like the order in which things needed to happen in, that was really the most challenging for me. I just needed someone to kind of walk me through it. And I didn't really have anyone to do that. I just kind of had to figure it out by trial and error. Like, oh man, I just needed this NPI, then an EIN, then this, then that, then a bank account. Like once I could figure that out, then I felt like, okay, this is very manageable and doable. That's kind of how my brain works. I really need to, um, like I need the, almost like the autonomy of like wanting to enjoy my morning coffee and take my time and really think about things and be able to spend time with caregivers and then like go home and reflect, write an email, write up a summary this is how I think we can best support your child. Like kind of like in that order rather than like a really overwhelming like medical setting where it's like everything needs to happen right now, right here. And, you know, I feel like I the way I work and like the way I can do the best for a family or a child is like my I have a process, you know? So I feel like this is the way that I can do my best and so be supportive. And I feel like private practice allows me to do that. I think we've had conversations before about how maybe it's just in our opinion, because I definitely feel like the only way that I as an autistic person will have longevity in this career is to just do my own thing. And I think we're going to get into a little bit of why that might be the case as we have this conversation. But I, I think we've talked about that before. It's like having that autonomy to not be held to those stringent productivity expectations is one of those big things and 
being able to have control over like what what your clinical work looks like, I guess. I mean, is that something that you that that is true for you? Absolutely. And like in every setting I've been in, burnout, burnout happens because you're held to these productivity standards, you know? And also in my first clinical experience, like in private practice, it's like back to back to back to back to back. It's like session, then session. And it's not like one population or one thing. It's like articulation, language, adult. It's all different things. And it's like, I need a minute to like process. You know, I feel like I'm, we, a lot of us in the field, our field, we're running on autopilot. We don't have a chance to like think critically and like do the absolute best that we can because it's productivity, you know, and I I get it. It's a business, right? But like, I still think that that productivity really, it's, it's a hindrance on (laughs) patient care, quality care. We've already talked about this. So, you know, that I agree with that, but um, (laughs) I think too, like, at least for me with, with productivity, it's not that I don't want to see kids. Like if I didn't have a productivity expectation on me, I probably would still see a lot of kids in a week because I like doing my job, but it's just that constant, like, you got to hit your numbers. Are you going to hit your number? You were sick this week, so make sure that you make up for it and hit your number. Like, that is more stressful for me than the actual act of seeing however many kids in a week because I like doing that part. Absolutely. I 100% like feel the same way. And like sometimes even in my own practice, like I have a hard time saying no. I want to take on all the kids because I I genuinely love what I do. And in private practice, like there is the freedom where you're like, you know, you specialize in, for instance, like early language development. Like there's freedom in scheduling a morning of parent coaching. You know what I mean? Whereas like with somebody else's private practice or working in a different setting, it's like you might have like a morning of various different kinds of patients that you'll be seeing. You know, with me in the morning, I'm like, all right, Wednesday mornings, I see, you know, five kids and that is all parent coaching, you know? And so I'm kind of like single channeled in my attention to focus on that kind of area. And I, you know, that that's kind of how I set things up for myself. But yeah, sometimes I'm like, all right, Jamie, you have to also keep in mind like what my capacity is for the day, my cognitive capacity for the day, because I do want to protect that because I do know I'm very prone to burnout. So yeah. Yeah. So like I said at the top, we are here to talk about neurodiversity. We're here to talk about being neurodiversity affirming in this field, which can really feel like going against the grain a lot of the time, Um, especially if you're not working on your own in a private practice and you're having to interact with a lot of different professionals. But can I hear a little bit about your journey as far as implementing neuroaffirming practices in your own clinical work. Was that something that was always a thing for you or did you have to go through a transformation, so to speak? Oh yeah. It's definitely been a transformation. Like in some ways, you know, it's always been like a child led kind of thing. And I think that that's like a really important foundation in neurodiversity affirming practices, but no, it's definitely been a journey. And I think that's, um, you know, for a lot of clinicians, but in graduate school, like a lot of the, 
like in autism, like when we learned about autism, it was very much not neurodiversity affirming. It was very inaccurate. You know, looking back, it's like, oh, wow, that's that is that is not accurate at all. What, what we were taught. And I was actually um, a few weeks ago, I was like, you know what, let me see if I have anything like from graduate school to like see what that because uh, we had like a summer semester of autism. It was like an autism course. And I'm looking back in these materials and I'm seeing, you know, there was a little bit on certs, like the certs model. There was a little bit on like um, DIR floor time, but the main focus was like social skills training, PECs, and like not very much on anything neurodiversity. And this was 2010. That was 2009, 2010. So I'm like, okay, you know, so much has happened (laughs) since then. Thank goodness. But no, it's been a journey. Um, A lot of it like didn't sit right with me and I was really confused. And like looking back, I remember like having social skills groups that in my clinical rotations and I'm like, I don't even know what I'm supposed to do. Like I'm lost. And that's actually the first time when I was like getting a um, formal evaluation for myself. I was like, I'm lost in the sauce and I don't know what I'm supposed to work with with these kids. And I felt like I don't know if I could even work with kids if this is what I'm supposed to do. I don't understand eye contact. Like, I don't know if I'm cut out for this. But anyway, um, it's definitely been a journey um, to neurodiversity affirming practices for sure. Speaking on the grad school stuff, I feel like the like number one thing I remember from my autism class was PECs. Like we talked so much about PECs. I don't think we ever talked about certs or skirts. I, I never know how to pronounce that. Definitely had never heard about floor time until I finished school. I just remember talking so much about PECs. And luckily, I had a different AAC class and was able to implement some of that in my clinical practice later. But it was not like robust AAC, definitely not really introduced. And just out of curiosity, when were you in graduate school? I started in 2019. I'm a baby. So I was 2019 to 21. That's a 10-year difference between mine in 2009 and yours is 2019. So I was talking about PECs in my program and in your program still with the PECs. <laughs> what is it with that? Yeah, it's so, I mean, and and then you leave school and you're like, you know, lived experience of people and like, and I did try to do it for some kids. I was never like PECs certified or, or whatever it's called, but I tried to use some elements of it because that's what I was taught was best practice. And it, yeah, it doesn't feel good. It doesn't feel good to do. And I've said this before on the pod, but um, so, so much of this uh, conversation about being affirming, I feel like does lead us back to why we're even in this profession in the first place. And if it doesn't feel good to do, why would it feel good for the person that we're working with. Really good point. Absolutely. Yeah. If it doesn't sit right, it's for a reason. (laughs) For sure. So was there a distinct moment for you where you started like more intentionally making that shift in your clinical practice? Like when you started your private practice, was that like a big moment for you or, or when did that really start to happen? So honestly, I started my private practice and like what I wanted to specialize in was speech sound disorders. I'm really passionate about speech sound disorders, but I did, one of the first kids that I saw was just recently diagnosed with autism and his mom said 
you know, would you be willing to see my, my child? He just was recently diagnosed. And I was like, sure, you know, I can do my best. My specialty right now is like speech sound disorders, but like, sure. And she's like, you know, I recently read a book called Uniquely Human. And she was like, would you be open to reading it? And I was like, absolutely. And so I read this book and I'm like, huh, I've never considered a lot of this. And that's, um, that was a great eye-opening book. And so it got my wheels turning and like, we kind of just, that, that really was, I think, I think that was like in 2017. And again, like that was really when I started taking on new, new clients. So that really got the wheels turning. And then again, like really, you know, I went like full-time in my practice 2019. So yeah, like around then, and then 2020, like did more and more reading, got my diagnosis shortly after that. So really the shift kind of happened shortly after that. So yeah. And then once you go down that rabbit hole, you you don't really come out. You don't come back up. It's so true. What were the biggest things that you were like, okay, I have to stop doing this right away? Like for me, being an early intervention, there was such a focus on establishing eye contact because that was like the thing that was seen as social engagement. And like we have to establish social attunement or social engagement with these kids. So make sure you get that eye contact. That was one of the things that like almost right off the bat, I I stopped paying any mind to. Do you have any of those things? So that actually was one of the things that after reading like the uniquely human, like this mom, we actually never really implemented that anyway. And which was great because like that was never comfortable for me anyway. But the thing that really blew my mind was the reward system, not using rewards. That was a big thing for me because I was like, you know, again, like these behavioral approaches where it's like, you know, we're working for a reward. Like that was a huge shift for me that I didn't stop until really the pandemic when it wasn't even like an option anymore because I was doing virtual. I'm like, oh, when it's not even an option, you're not working for something. That was like a huge thing for me. And I was like, oh, I didn't even realize that that's almost a punishment in disguise kind of thing. You know, when you're not giving that that's, that's an adult centered approach. That was a huge shift for me. I was like, Oh, I'm never using that ever again. I don't want a child to ever feel like I'm performing for an adult. That's so harmful. So that was a, that was an eye opener for me and I'll never use it again. (laughs) Yeah, absolutely. And one of the things that you mentioned earlier about being child led, I think even that is something that can actually be turned into a not great practice because I don't know if clinicians always internalize what being child-led actually means, or I think it's sometimes used as an equivalent to being play-based and play-based does not always mean affirming because at least in my experience, we'll, we'll say, Oh, we're going to work on these play skills. And then the play skills is just like teaching, teaching the right way to play, so to speak. And so then it's not actually child-led and it's not actually even play-based because it's not play for the child. So it, it's, I mean, I say this all the time, but like, it's not just, oh yeah, we're going to play toys instead of doing flashcards. Like it, that doesn't make it affirming on its own. Right. Because play is defined by what is intrinsically motivating, you know, led by the child. It's in play looks different for all children. Yeah. Intrinsic motivation is also something that I've been having a lot of really intentional conversations 
with parents about lately because I always, like I'm sure you do, come from a total multimodal communication approach. And that can be, for for some parents, it can be a little off-putting because they want to hear the verbal spoken language, right? But I've been having a lot of discussions about if I like hold up a Skittle and then say like, say whatever, they're not going to say the word because they wanted to say the word. They're going to say the word because they wanted the Skittle. And that's not, that's not going to motivate them to say the word later. It's not just like you said, it's, it's an external reward. It's not actually based off of a desire to communicate. And so that like not missing the forest for the trees and like focusing on communication as a whole, like being connected and paying attention to cues and recognizing that body language is communication, hand leading is communication. It it is much more long-term maintainable progress. And I hope that that is something that means a lot to my parents, but I know that getting those words is is something a lot of people want and that's not going to really change on the whole which you know so it is what it is yeah and like when i think about it when we think about it, like that hand leading is amazing i'm like this is if we can't look at that as the most intentional communication when i hear that a kid starts hand leading i'm like yeah hand leading whereas a lot of <laughs> unfortunately i'll see other reports that say child is using no communication signals. They only hand lead for something. And I'm like, that is, it's using the word communication to mean spoken language, which is not, I mean, I think that 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 language mix up in and of itself is causing more confusion and harm, ultimately. Absolutely. It's like that message is received. You know, you've brought me someplace and how lucky am I that you've taken my hand and led me somewhere to show me that that's something that you want or that you want to show me something like that's awesome. You know, that's that's amazing. Yeah. And those times where parents are like, oh, he took me to show show me that he needed help with something. I'm like, like that is going to be progress that is so maintained because it came from them wanting to do it. And it's, it's such a, it's just a powerful thing. It really is. And like, you know, the reason I really went into this field is like one, because my mom told me to, (laughs) like, I definitely listened to my mom. Like, you know, this was like back in high school. I was like, Oh, what do I want to do? What do I want to do with my life? My mom's like, I think you should be a speech language pathologist. And I'm like, okay. So anyway, but my mom said, listen, I was so, I was so nervous in graduate school going into this clinical, you know, my externships. She said, listen, you got to remember two things, meet the child where they are. And Kids are kids first and you have to have fun. And like really just hearing those two things, I think we just forget that like we have to meet a child where they are. It's so, so important. And like just just knowing that like we have to acknowledge a child is a child first, you know, no matter what the diagnosis is, we need to understand that, you know, we, we have to incorporate their interests. We have to incorporate play and play again looks different for every child. And it's not age specific, you know, it's not, it's never going to be that it's, there's no such thing as age appropriate play. And I, I can't, if I see that in another report, I think I might just lose it, you know, 
I think I just might, Emily. Yeah, I, I say that to myself every day that if I see XYZ thing, I'm going to just throw my whole computer away. Um, and something else that I have also talked about before and that I think about all the time is how we have so much higher expectations for kids who have any type of diagnosis or are just in therapy than we would otherwise have for them. Like we don't look at a newborn baby and say, all right, say, say, I love you. You know, I mean, we do, but like, we don't literally expect them to say, I love you. You know what I mean? Like, so when a kid's not in therapy, adults naturally meet them where they're at. They naturally hold, at least this is my opinion. They naturally hold appropriate expectations for them. But as soon as they're in therapy or have any kind of delay or disorder, et cetera, all of a sudden these expectations are put at these unreasonable for this child level. And it's never, it's never made a whole lot of sense to me. Yeah. And, you know, I wonder why that is, you know, I wonder what, like how, how we got here you know, are we just almost conditioned to think, oh, well, now I'm going to look at it from this perspective. Surely um, I'm looking for things that might not even be there or I'm, you know, I'm looking at too many things or I'm trying to find something wrong or whatever, you know. In my, in my experience, I think it has to do with like the age equivalents of certain skills. So like if you see a two-year-old you know, like a 24 to 26 month old. And we're like, well, they should be putting two words together. So I need to expect them to be putting two words together right now without considering like actually where they're at. It's, it's like strict adherence to those milestones rather than the development of this person. At least that's what I think. Yeah. So The main thing that I wanted to talk about, and this is, it's kind of a selfish topic for me. I keep telling people this, that this podcast is a little bit selfish intention sometimes because I just want to learn and talk to people and like solve my own clinical problems kind of, and hopefully help other people with their clinical, clinical problems as well. But like I said at the beginning, it, it can really be going against the grain to be an affirming professional. And so working with other professionals who aren't affirming is really challenging. And so this is the thing that I really wanted to dig in with you today. I think there's it's a, such a multifaceted thing. But for me, what's challenging is as soon as I heard about the neurodiversity movement and just like, read about the lived experiences of people, I was like, all right, this is how it is, you know? And then I have that like autistic justice sensitivity part of my brain too, where once I realize there's an injustice, I like perseverate on it. And it is personally hurtful to me when those systems of injustice keep being perpetuated. And for me, it's like, if I tell someone about something like, hey, this is harmful or like, here's new information so that your practice can become better. And they don't immediately take that on the way that I did. I like don't get it. And it it makes it hard for me to even continue like working with a person or trying, even though 
I know that's what I need to do in order to have the most positive impact on the kids and the field. So I know that wasn't really a question, but do you have any thoughts about that concept just to get us started? Yeah, I think ultimately neurodiversity affirming practices, like not everybody's going to be neurodiversity affirming. I think mostly because I don't think everybody knows about it. You know, I think it's important to have conversations and just like I didn't know the things that I didn't know until I knew them, I try to think about it from a place of, okay, you know, I didn't know what I didn't know until I knew it. And I'm sure there's a lot of other professionals that once they know it, let's assume, or maybe let's not assume, maybe they'll start slowly implementing these things. For me, I think like, and maybe, you know, it sounds like for you too, it's kind of like an overnight change. Like, oh, I better stop doing that immediately. And I think like for a lot of professionals, it's like, oh my gosh, like I think a good example of this, it's like once they knew like, oh my gosh, hand over hand is, oh my, like once they learned, oh, that's probably really harmful. It doesn't allow a child to like remove their hand. Let me just try, if any physical prompting, let's try hand under hand so they can, you know, remove their hand if they, they're not comfortable with that. You know, I think that that's, that's a simple fix. For people that don't do that or refuse to do that, I wonder why not? You know, I want I want answers. Why aren't you doing this? I feel like, come on, get with the program here. My thought initially is probably with you. It's like, I feel like there's an injustice. Like, come on. I still want to balance that with like coming from a place of understanding and connection, you know? And I don't want to like accuse someone of not like changing overnight, but like, why? You know, I, I almost want to ask more questions like, do, do you really know about this or the harm that your baby inadvertently causing? Um, my thoughts are along the same lines, I think. It's like, for me, it's like an immediate, like, oh my gosh, I'm so, so sorry. You know, I think about like, wow, I didn't know that I was inadvertently ca- causing harm. Like, and for me, like, yeah, it immediately changed. But yeah, like my my thoughts on that are like, I wish everybody knew this information, you know? Yeah, and we were talking just a few minutes ago about burnout and the ridiculous expectations that are put on clinicians in their work. And you mentioned how it doesn't it doesn't create critical thinkers and I think that that is a big it's a layered problem, but I I I think that that's a big part of it too is that maybe people just don't have the time or like the cognitive capacity to hear these things or to look into these things for themselves. Because another thing that I see is when these things are brought up, like we don't work on eye contact or social skills and we don't use hand over hand, just as a example, it's like, well, then what are we supposed to work on? There's like no further investigation into that. But again, like, maybe I need to have some more empathy there because people have crazy expectations put on them in their day to day. Yeah. Or maybe just if it's a specific shared client, just being like, let's work on self-advocacy rather than eye contact. And that might look like, Hey, I'm still paying attention to you. If I'm looking down that, you know, just working on that rather than having someone staring right in your eyes. Like that's, silly like to me and I know that I'm different because I 
I don't use eye contact like in the way that I guess is expected, but it's like, if I'm not looking directly in your eyes, like for an expected period of time or amount of opportunities, like I'm still listening. Yeah. I think a lot of these things are like, even when you were talking about like not knowing what to do with social skills, like they are pretty arbitrary in the first place. There's like no consistent rules about it anyway. So the idea that we would have to work on this when our own personal experiences with it are different from person to person is a little silly. Yeah. There's no like neurotypical social skills are not superior. They're not the right way. Like there's two different types of communication styles. There's our autistic communication style and holistic communication styles. And like, who's to say one is right and one is wrong. And even holistic people in different parts of the world also use their social communication skills differently. So yeah, it it just, I don't think it's actually super relevant most of the time, unless you're talking about like safety concerns or things like that. Yeah. And like that again is going to be client specific, family specific, culture specific, you know, those are things to also consider. So I know right now you're doing your own thing in private practice, but what kind of experiences do you, have you had in the past or do you currently get to have as far as collaborating with other professionals on the child's care team? Yeah. So like, I mean, from various professionals to pediatric dentists, occupational therapists, fellow SLPs, BCBAs, RBTs, I will try to get on the phone with whoever's on the team just to kind of collaborate. And especially with like early language development, if I know the child's a gestalt language processor, I find it especially helpful to try and find a time to connect, even if that's like five, 10 minutes. I know everybody's so busy just to kind of connect and do a little bit of like collaboration and education if like someone's not familiar with what it means to be a gestalt language processor. Because, um, Ultimately, we want to make sure we're modeling the same gestalts, depending on what like stage the child's in. Also, definitely collaborating with like the caregivers as well, coaching the caregivers. But other than that, you know, like the caregivers and client come to my office to see me. So I don't, I'm not usually out in the community or at the school or anything like that. But that's basically what that looks like for for me. Um, but I like to keep an open line of communication through email whenever possible, just to kind of um, chat. And so what are some strategies that you find helpful for introducing some of these concepts in a way that's really approachable for other professionals? Because that's something that I personally struggle with is I'm autistic. I have an info dumping communication style and I have a so it sounds soapboxy a lot of the time. So is that like a similar experience that you have and it, and it goes better for you than it does for me? Or do you have methods Yeah, I feel like I can get soapboxy. And I think like, if you even have like 20, 30 minutes, that'll save you probably hours and hours of your time to come up with like, one document that kind of outlines your approaches, you know, techniques that you use, and techniques that you don't use. But I specifically think it's important to like have strategies that you use instead. For instance, if it is, you know, you don't use hand overhand, why not what you use instead? I think that's important and can save a lot of time, you know, 
because you're going to be collaborating with a lot of professionals. And it's just like, hey, I just wanted to like email you this document or like hand it to them, you know, if you're in person or whatever. But like, I just think that can kind of save a lot of time just being like, hey, and I give this to caregivers just to say, this is what I do. This is why I don't use rewards. This is my strategies, my approach, my philosophy. This is my stance, you know, if we're, and and again, like I, I see kids that have speech sound disorders and I also see young language development. So, you know, when, whenever I see fit, like I'll give this document around and I'll say, this is like, just, just so you know, this is what I do. This is what I don't do. This is what I do instead. And I find that really helpful just to kind of like go over my main points. If they read it, great. If not, you know, I tried, but you know, that might save some time. I think the handout idea is such a great, concise way to introduce those concepts. What kind of responses have you received from other professionals when you provide a document like that? So generally good feedback. Like I I don't think I've ever gotten like a negative response. If anything, just no response, but like, that's fine too. And like the one, like one time, like in a session, a parent, like a mom was like, I was wondering why you weren't giving hand over hand or any physical prompting because I'm so used to seeing hand over hand. I was wondering when you were going to do that and you just gave him time and then he did it. And I'm like, yeah, like, you know, it was just kind of like a new concept, just like that wait time, you know? And I'm like, yeah, we need to let, we need to give kids time to like develop these motor plans like on their own and just watch and, and just let them, you know, learn on their own. Like I'm, but, but I also said, you know, the importance really also in letting kids learn and develop motor plans on their own is like also just the whole body autonomy, which is really why I don't use that. We need to let kids know, like, that's their right to not have someone touch their body. You know, I don't, I don't do that. So anyway, um, but positive, positive feedback usually, or no feedback, which is fine, but I at least need to know, like, I'm, I'm heard and I express myself because if I'm going to go into like a conversation, just like you said, like I can't get on a soapbox. And also I want to make sure I'm effective and efficient in what I'm saying. So that's why I'm like, yep, here you go. This is what I, this is what I do. And also like with private practice, I am seeing kids, but even from my initial phone consultation, I'm stating these things. I'm saying, this is how I do things. If you're looking for a behavioral approach, blah, 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 I'm not the right fit. Like I'm saying these things off the bat. So I'm not going to be seeing families if they're looking for a certain approach because I don't offer that. And that's okay if they're looking for that. I'm just not the right fit. So I think that's also why I've never had a negative experience because it's like, there's no secrets. I'm telling them this is what I offer, you know? It's not like, surprise, I'm not using behavioral approaches with your kid. It's like, yeah, I'm, this is what I offer, you know? Do you have any boundaries as far as like, if you hear that something is happening in another therapy, is that a moment that you would like intervene? Do you, Have you had any moments like that? So... There's been moments where like parents have shared like videos of other therapies and I'm like, oh yeah, like, hey, let me get on the phone with that, with that therapist real quick. (laughs) Let me just give them a real quick call, mom. And I do. And they've been like the nicest people. And again, like we all get into this profession, not to 
harm children. Like we get into this field to help. And like, I got on the phone with, it was an RBT and like the nicest person I've ever talked to. And I said, Hey, you know, I saw your session with, you know, so-and-so. And this person was so receptive and like, again, the nicest person and was like, Hey, I'm going to keep that in mind. And like, absolutely. Like, so receptive to my feedback. And again, it's all in like how I'm presenting it. And I'm not saying what you did was terrible and this was wrong. I'm saying, hey, what I've been doing in my sessions and this has really worked for for her. Like, do you want to try maybe doing A, B, and C and like, let me know how that works because I'm curious to see how she'll respond like with you and when we both try this thing. And it was really modeling a specific gestalt you know, it it really had to do with like a gestalt and like more of a compliance based type of like drill work, which I was like, oh, we're just kind of like drilling like rote memorization. And like, let's kind of like dial that back a little bit. But yeah, like that's I've had experiences with that for sure. But again, a positive, positive experience with kind of like just doing a little bit of education. That's definitely the feedback that I have gotten, even, you know, kind of outside of the neurodiversity stuff. I see a lot of kids at daycares and unfortunately, and this is a much bigger conversation, but unfortunately daycares are not always the best uh, environment for kids, you know, just to put it plainly. And I, again, autistic justice sensitivity, it's frustrating for me. And when when I express my frustrations like to my manager, usually what I hear is maybe offer something that they can try instead or tell them like what's worked for you. So like if they're making all the kids sit at the table during diaper changes and getting frustrated that they're not staying seated at the table, maybe say, hey, maybe we could try putting some Legos on the table. I think if they had something to do, they might do what you're asking a little bit more. But I've also gotten that feedback as far as actual therapy strategies, talking to other professionals and saying like, this is what's worked for me in my sessions. Who knows, maybe it'll work for you. Because I do think that more often than not, people are just spinning their wheels and just thinking like all of this stuff that I learned in school or that like works with a quote unquote late talker is not working. And so I guess I'm just going to try and try and try and try and wonder why is this kid so frustrated? Why are we not getting anywhere? And and I think that's where a lot of problems come from. Not necessarily, again, like like you said, they're not trying to be harmful. They're just like, they just don't know another way a lot of times. Yeah. Or they're like, again, like I only just recently learned a lot about like the sensory, like the sensory aspect. And it's like, I think a lot of times too, if we can just provide a little education on like, hey, I think we just like missed some like sensory cues and like, if we can kind of be proactive about like learning this child's sensory processing differences, like being more proactive in like learning, okay, let's prevent a meltdown. You know, let's, let's make everybody's life easier, especially that child. I think everyone's like, oh my gosh, didn't even think about it that way. Cause it's like a few years ago, I would have never considered that. Cause I didn't know that, you know, it's like, oh yeah. I think everyone's just receptive to being like, oh yeah, I'm, I'm down to learn. Yeah, my education in school regarding autism and sensory needs was like, sometimes kids don't like when the lights are too bright. And that was kind of it. And then you learn more and like, in our case, have lived experience, which I don't know what it was like for you, but I didn't realize how much of my life was kind of 
influenced by my sensory needs until it was framed in my specific situation. Obviously, I went through school fully autistic, went through a whole semester of autism class being autistic and and didn't recognize it in myself because I needed to have like my actual examples. But all that being said, like, I think I'm glad that people are starting to realize that for autistic people, the sensory component is not an afterthought at all. It's like foundational to everything. I was even talking to an occupational therapist who was like, I don't think that the social challenges, quote unquote, are really even related to interactions. I think it has a lot more to do with sensory needs and it just underlies everything. Yeah. I would be a completely different person socially. I would do so much more socially if I could stand to be in specific environments, you know, and, and throughout the, my, my entire life, like throughout the ages. And like, it's so interesting that like, yeah, of course I've been autistic my entire life. I've stimmed my entire life, but never knew that that was the word for it until a few years ago. I've always wondered what I'm stimming right now for the listeners. I've always wondered what this was called. And like my parents always just called it my comfort because like they didn't know what it was called either. I've done this since I was a toddler. I used to, before I had like long enough hair, I used to do with my mom's hair. And like I, and for the listeners, Jamie is stimming with my hair underneath my lips right now, just poking my, my underneath my lips. My mom would always just, that's your comfort. That's called, you know, they were just what we would call it. And like, I, for the longest time, I'm like, what is that, that I do it? I've just always done it. And a lot of times I don't even know that I'm doing it. And like, that keeps me regulated and on point. And if I couldn't do that, I I like, but I've suppressed doing it because like, it's weird. (laughs) I was actually just having um, a discussion with a friend who's like not a therapist at all. He's just an employee at a place where they had trainings about making the environment more sensory friendly. And it actually sounded like a really good training because it was led by one holistic person and then one autistic person who was just giving a lot of information. And he told me that after that training, he's been offering more sensory support to people, which is great. But he used the example of like, well, if I see a kid who's like obviously stimming in the corner, like I'm going to ask their parent, do they, do they need some sensory tools? And I, I was like, that's good. Like, I'm glad that you're doing that. But also I think it's important to know that like stimming does not mean that a person's in distress if you see someone stimming, that does not mean that something bad is happening. And I think it's good to make these things available, but also like don't force it onto them because sometimes I'm just stimming, you know, like it, it, it's a, it's not a negative thing. And so I think that can kind of be like a, a disconnect there. It feels, it does feel good. Yeah. Yeah. I was wondering, like, have you ever encountered a situation? I know that you don't do co-treats, but where you have recognized that like a therapy that really doesn't align with you has been causing a child harm or like working against the way that you're working with them. And have you had to address that? So I, not in my practice, but like looking back, yeah. And I remember like, private practice for sure. But like, there's nothing I could do about that then. And this was like, again, like, 
Um, I remember the caregiver like taking the child out of that harmful therapy and being like, this just does not align with whatever. And I remember like there being an increase in behaviors we had never seen out of this child. And the caregiver was like so in tune with knowing this is just not for us. But no, right now, I, I think the biggest challenge I'm seeing is just like trying to get the teams on board with the language, like how to promote the language and like uh, the stuck single words, stuck single words is like the challenge. So like I suspect, and like, it's not a therapy. It's basically just like the entire school day, <laughs> like the entire school day. So that's something I'm actively figuring out. Cause I'm like, I know it's, it's not a therapy, but it's just like, this this t- child's entire day from the moment they wake up to the to the time they see me after school. I'm like, I know they're being asked WH questions the entire day. And then the moment they get to me, they're almost whispering. They're like whispering there. And I'm like, are you being told to like be quiet all day? Because when you get to me, you're just whispering your childish thoughts and whispering your songs. And I'm like trying to facilitate like Getting getting that, that language out again, you know, getting our gestalt out again. Sometimes I feel like I, in my setting, I am not the only person who is working on language. I have other thoughts about that, but not for this topic. And sometimes I feel like I have to tell people, and I tell parents too, that less is more in a lot of cases, because because especially with gestalt language processors, it is just so the language prompting and, and stuff is like so over the top, you know, and for GLPs, like the whole point of it, <laughs> the way that I like simplify it is they're going to pick up what they pick up. And our job in that case is to just be a listening ear and be a validating person and just communicate with them. And so that's like a very, very hard gap to bridge because I can't tell you how many times I, and again, this is something that just does not compute in my head because like if I hear something once and it makes sense to me and it's, especially if it's backed up by something that I can like read and, and know that it's legit, I'm like, Oh, okay. Yeah. But I, I'll ha- I'll say like, hey, remember this kid is one of those kids that doesn't really learn single words. I- I'm simplifying it, but doesn't really learn single words right off the bat. Like they they would learn a lot better if you just sang their favorite songs with them or focused more on full phrases. And they'll be like, oh, okay, like we we can we can do that. Most of the time, it doesn't happen, but you know they'll at least demonstrate some level of understanding. And then we'll have another kid who is like basically the same profile and we have to have that conversation all over again. And I just don't know, aside from like, you know, forcing my way into giving an in-service or something, how to get those messages to stick. Like, I don't know if it's the way that I explain it or what, but, or if it's just, people who are like so set in the way that they're used to doing things, which I'm sure that that is a big contributor. I don't know. Yeah. And I, a lot of times I'm like, I think it's probably the way I'm explaining things because I like, I I honestly think it's me a lot of the time. So I'll just be like, okay, 
I'll write like two post-it notes of a gestalt. I'll be like, model this this week, model these two this week redundantly. You know, if it's a stage one, just two post-it notes, put them wherever you are. And, and whenever, whenever it's appropriate, like that, it makes sense. Think of these two gestalts and also acknowledge the gestalts, please. But I know I, I have that same struggle. Like I feel that I'm like, yeah. And I'm like, is it me? <laughs> I'm like, it's gotta be, it's gotta be me. And that, that's how I feel a lot of the times too. But I do really like the idea of, I want I, I want to have a handout like you. And if you are able to describe in a little more detail what that handout looks like for, for both me and the listeners, I think that would be really helpful too. I know you gave a couple of examples, but like, what's the breakdown? Yeah, it's just my values. Like my values are bodily autonomy, child-centered. You know, I value connection emotional regulation first you know i do not use compliance based strategies here i don't use deficits based so it's basically like it's like my recipe for speech therapy success like on my instagram i did like a post about it like a long time ago it's basically roughly based off of that it's like my recipe for success and it's like fun strengths based presuming competence uh emotional regulation connection i don't use compliance i value bodily autonomy so that means i'm not going to be using hand over hand instead i don't use physical prompting you know if if anything like if there's um something that i need to use um physical prompting for like i would consider hand under hand but generally i don't use any physical prompting at all to teach a skill i use modeling um as my as my go-to. And then always children, um, I believe that children have the ability to learn. And so I'm always presuming competence. So it's basically that. And I think that's about it. And so I think we've established already that for a lot of people, it's like a lack of knowledge and that introducing these ideas can go really well, especially when you like provide concrete alternatives. And as we've talked about before, like I think that's a big barrier for a lot of people when they start looking into being more neurodiversity affirming is that there's not a goal bank most of the time and there's not a program or a curriculum most of the time and there shouldn't be in my opinion but this might be a hypothetical but what if there's a situation where we are offering alternatives or we're sharing our values or our approaches to therapy and the other professional is just like digging their heels in and just like brick wall what what would your approach be to that I mean I almost feel like for myself I would kind of have to just draw that boundary and just kind of shut it down in order to protect myself but what what are your thoughts on that Yeah, absolutely. I mean, you know, it's always, you know, I think especially for like autistic clinicians too, it's like, absolutely. Like you definitely need to draw some boundaries for yourself to definitely protect your mental health above all. Right. But I do think it's important to be having these conversations with caregivers and we always want to, you know, caregivers know their babies, they know their child best. We need to allow them to also make the informed decision about what approaches are being used with their, with their children. And also like not assuming that they know what approaches are even being used, So I think to like going, you know, going to the caregiver and just saying, you know, maybe, maybe if, if it is something that we do feel is really harmful, I think it is obviously worth a conversation with a caregiver. Hey, just wanted to bring this to your attention. I noticed 
this being used and I just wanted to bring it to your attention. And then at least bringing it to the caregivers, you know, just so they know about it. But that would be my suggestion. And then leaving it at that, like, you know, I, I wanted to mention like, this might be considered, you know, maybe instead looking at the bigger picture, but ultimately it's the caregiver's decision, what kind of approach they'd like to take. And then depending on your comfort level, if that's something that you're around all the time and it's something that you're not even comfortable being around or witnessing, then you don't need to stick around on that case. For what? Again, protect your mental. Like if that's something that you is uncomfortable to you, you know, if it's a harmful approach, don't, you you don't need to be there. You know, why? Yeah. And I think... That's definitely something that I've been trying to incorporate more when I first start meeting with a family is like, tell me a little bit about you. Now, I'm going to tell you a little bit about me because I think it's important that you know about your therapist and that we get on the same page so that if, you know, we're not aligning, you can be honest with me about that and we can we can work it out. And I think that having that conversation early on helps to not have it be surprising when those situations are brought up later. And I have this happen all the time. I If I bring up like these are my approaches and then I have a family who's considering going into to ABA, then it's a little easier for me to be like, okay, you know, ultimately it's your choice. You're the caregiver. So you have the choice. But like we've talked about, these are my approaches it may not align very much with what you get in this behavioral-based therapy. And again, it's not as much of, of a shock to them. Yeah, and depending on the provider and how receptive they are to our to us taking maybe even the lead on the language, it may actually interfere with progress. And I think that's important, that's an important point to make, you know, because if we are using only using PECs and not using a robust AAC. Uh, communication device. If we are only prompting WH questions, yeah, it's going to hinder progress. You know, there's a, I'm not saying there's a definitely, but there's a strong possibility if that child is a gestalt language processor that we're going to hinder some progress. I think that's an important point to bring up with caregivers. Like, you know, depending on the clinician, how open-minded they are with collaboration, that that might be the case. Even fellow SLPs, you know, at the school, depending on their techniques, and if they're using compliance-based and if they don't know about Gestalt language processing and aren't willing to learn, there might be a hindrance of progress, you know? So I've had situations with fellow SLPs as well. Absolutely. And even like in my position, I, I don't see kids after they turn three, but once they get close to turning three, I start to bring up those like, hey, if you've liked the way that we've been working together... I want you to know that you may not get that right off the bat when you transition into school. And so here's some language that you can use to communicate what you're wanting to see out of therapy. And you have the ability to advocate for what your child needs. And you're their voice right now in a lot of cases. So that's something that I try to do too, because I do... I do. I have a lot of protectiveness over the kids that I work with, even the kids that I like just do an initial evaluation for. I have a lot of protectiveness over because I just have overwhelming 
I have, I have overwhelming emotion, you know? And so like the minute I evaluate them, I'm like, I love you, (laughs) you know, but I have to send them off to other therapists a lot of the times. And so even though it's a short amount of time that I'm able to talk to them, I try to be like, Hey, here is some stuff that I'm seeing. And here are like things that you can work on. And like, this should be your goal. You know, when I'm writing goals that I'm sending to other therapists, it's it's part of the, you know, ECI structure, but I'm explaining like, communication is all of those things. So you can be working on all of these different parts of communication. So that hopefully, when they start working with another therapist who is probably going to be focused a lot on just getting those spoken words, the parent has some language to explain like, well, is there something else that we can do here? And, you know, hopefully those other therapists are taking it into account. Yeah. Autonomous communication as a goal. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. So I think we're actually getting to a really good point where we can start coming to a, to a wrap up. I just want to know if there, we, we've covered a lot. You've given a lot of really good practical approaches. Do you have any like final thoughts, final tips, or just like a, like a summary of what your approach is to, to this collaboration with potentially non-affirming yet professionals? Yeah. I feel like a lot of times it just comes down to having a very simple conversation And like, ah, we can't do it all alone. You know what I mean? Like, if it feels overwhelming, try to find somebody that, you know, you can just have a discussion with and being like, hey, are you noticing what I'm noticing? You know, how can we like make a difference in ECI together? You know, how can we like do an in-service together and like get more people on board with doing things a little bit differently, step by step, little by little, making a big change, you know, over time. I definitely think having a handout will save you so much time (laughs) to hand out to other professionals. And like also maybe not assuming that someone's maybe not using a neurodiversity strategy, just assuming that they probably don't know about it and coming from the place of like, what can someone do instead rather than like what they're doing wrong, I think is always helpful. Just doing your best. You know, we're all kind of doing our best. No one went into this profession, any of the related professions to like harm you know, we all went into help and like knowing the specific child that you're sharing a case with, like how can we help support that child and their and their family? Those are my suggestions. That's my, for now, that's what I can, that's the best I can do for right now. That's where my brain's taking me. <laughs> well, I think it's really good. I know at the very least, I am going to make my own handout. And yeah, I do think it's just important. It, it can be going back to the justice sensitivity thing, like I get cynical and can kind of assume bad intent from other people, but it's not usually the case. So I I think really what I got from this is that I can have a little bit more hope that things can, can be communicated about and hopefully helped. So yeah, I just appreciate that perspective a lot. Yeah. Yeah. And I appreciate being here today. Thank you so much for having me. Yes. Thank you for being here. It was a great discussion. So before we log off, where can the people find you online? 
Speech Baby LLC is my Instagram. If you want to follow me, I try to, I'm usually active in my stories. I try my hardest to do posts, but I, I really try, but not a whole lot happens there. That's a whole other discussion that I've been having with with other autistic people of like, oh, making content that actually gets into people's feeds is like not an accessible thing for my autistic brain. But stories are always fun. I'm always having fun in the stories. (laughs) Yeah, absolutely. And do you have any upcoming like projects or presentations that you would like to promote? Well, no, not not really. But I'm finally I was working with two SLP researchers and we finally just submitted our first round of peer review for our research paper. I am so excited. It's it's uh, I was happy to be a part of that, you know, for neurodiversity affirming research. So I'm not giving away anything, but I'm just excited that we got that going. I'm excited for you too. I can't wait to see. I can't wait to see what comes from that. Well, yeah. Thank you again so much for being here. And I hope to have you back again very soon. Amazing. Can't wait to be back. Thanks so much again for joining me for another episode. Please follow Jamie on Instagram if you don't already and follow myself if you would like to see more neurodiversity, autism therapy content. And if you enjoyed this episode and got value out of this podcast, please rate it on whatever podcast platform you're using and share it with anyone that you think would find this information valuable. I hope to see y'all back for another episode in two weeks. Bye.